Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Hello, this week we're putting the X into sex because we're looking at the science of the X chromosome and diseases that are related to it. And that's with uh, from the Sanger Institute, Dr Mark Ross. Hi, Mark. Hi, Chris. So if you have any questions about things like baldness, colour blindness, haemophilia or muscular dystrophy, those are all problems related to the X chromosome and we'll be talking a bit about that later, then call now. 08459 25 2000 is our phone number, the text number 07786 20 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. We're also going to be using the power of, of molecular biology or genetics to ask who's eating who beneath the ground because it's very easy to look on the surface and see animals eating each other and work out what's called a food web but how do you do that for animals that live out of sight, out of mind and below the ground? Well, Michael Traugott from the University of Cardiff is here to tell us how he's using the science of molecular biology. Good evening, Michael. Hi, Chris. To do just that. So they're here to take your questions this evening and talk about anything to do with genetics in general. You just have to phone in. As I say, that number 08459 25 2000. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or text us on 07786 20 Hello, my name's Chris Smith, and also here to bring you tonight's programme is Phil Rosenberg. Hi, Chris. Uh, also in tonight's show, uh, the news we've got is how magnets can actually knock migraines on the head, and where to look for life in other solar systems around other stars. And uh, if you're in an experimental mood this evening, then we've got a great kitchen science experiment for you, because we're going to show you how to make a sample of DNA in your kitchen. And to do this, you're going to need the following apparatus. You're going to need a kiwi fruit and you can substitute an onion if you haven't got a kiwi fruit. You're going to need a cloth or something to filter the gloop that you're going to make with it, some hot water, and you're also going to need some ice-cold alcohol. Now, methylated spirits will work, but rum, white rum, works very well too, and you're going to need to make that cold. So get it in your fridge now. Now, to get the ball rolling on the question front, I've got a little teaser for you, and if you can get through on the phone first uh, out of the hat with the answer to this one, we could have a prize for you. I've got a great book all about Dolly the Sheep, which is not even on the bookshelf shelves yet. It comes out next week, and it's by Ian Wilmot, the guy who created Dolly the Sheep, and Roger Highfield from the Daily Telegraph. Tonight's question, the human body contains enough fat to make seven what? If you think you know the answer, 08459 25 2000. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Now, before we kick off with a look at what's happening genetically speaking, we'll take a look at the rest of this week's science news stories, as we always do from around the world. And here's a great story for anyone who is a sufferer of migraines. And I don't know, has anyone here ever had a migraine? Absolutely ghastly. Um, the first thing that you notice, have you had one, Phil? I've actually never had migraines. I'm lucky enough not to suffer from them. I've only ever had one, and I'm pleased to say it was the only one. The first thing that people characteristically describe is a distortion of the vision. You get these funny wiggly or wavy lines going across in front of your eyes and funny colours, and you can then even get loss of a part of your vision. You get a sort of blind spot. And that's then followed by a pounding headache. And at the moment, there are some drugs around that can help it to, to stave off the headache if it kicks in uh, with these aura symptoms first. But it's not great. But what we think is going on in the brain is that there's an area of the nervous system where a group of nerve cells are becoming a bit too overactive. And they, they rev up adjacent areas of the brain. And this is why you start to get these funny visual symptoms. And then they spread out across the brain with this increasing activity. And then they get tired out and they provoke blood vessels to open up painfully and that's why you get that throbbing headache afterwards and so researchers in the the ohio medical center over in the states wondered well if we can switch off the bits of the brain that are becoming too active early on in the course of a migraine 
perhaps we'll be able to stop it. And that was the idea of Yusef Mohammed, who's a neurologist at the Ohio Medical Center. And what they did was to use a magnet to do that, because we know the brain's an electrical organ, and since magnets can, can induce electrical currents, if you put a very powerful magnet onto the brain, you can change the activity of the brain. So they got 43 people who were migraine sufferers, and they said, next time you have what you think is going to become a migraine, come into our emergency room. And they divided them into two groups. The first group had, uh, the first group got a magnet treatment. The second group got just a placebo, so a pretend magnet. And they held this on the back of their head for two times to stimulate the brain. And then two hours later, asked the patients, how did you feel? And amazingly, 70% of the patients who had the magnetic therapy said that their migraine symptoms had completely vanished by two hours, and that's compared with only 48% of the patients that had the placebo. They just held this hairdryer-shaped migraine uh, magnetic stimulator against the head without actually doing anything. So this is a very interesting study. It suggests that we could be on the road to finding a very quick and simple, and very cheap, actually, way to stop migraines, literally nip them in the bud before they become a major problem. So how strong do these magnets need to be? Are they... You know, they're really big, chunky things. I mean, can you have these things at home? Would they be? No, you need a really powerful magnet. So essentially, um, you're putting a very high current through a coil, which is shaped a bit like a figure of eight, and uh, you need very thick wires to do this. And it's got to penetrate deep into the brain and suppress the activity of the part of the brain which we think is becoming too active. But scientists have had this tool for a long time. If you, if you hold it over the part of the brain that's concerned with making movements, you can make people move involuntarily you can stimulate the motor part of the brain and their arm will move their face will move and so we know that if you that, that you can change brain activity in this way so it certainly looks possible there's a company that have uh, been formed to produce these handheld stimulators which they think uh, will actually work as anti-migraine or migraine relieving uh, things and they're about the size of a hairdryer and uh, they reckon they'll market for about fifteen hundred dollars each fair enough sounds really interesting um right also we're looking at where would you find life on other planets well so far, or up till now, scientists have actually really been seriously looking at the possibility that life could exist on other planets, around other stars, in other solar systems. Now, the holy grail for looking for life around other stars is to try and find a roughly Earth-sized body orbiting about the same distance away from the Sun as our Earth. If it's too, too close to the Sun, it's too hot, and you just boil all the water that could be on the planet. If it's too far away, it's too cold. You freeze everything, just like we have on Mars. And if it's too big, you end up with a gas giant that's just sort of like Jupiter. It's not really very hospitable for life. Now, up to now, all we've ever found around other stars is gas giant, really big, massive planets that really have got no chance, really, of holding life. But now what we're looking at is a possibility that, rather than looking at a planet to hold life, look at a moon instead. So this would be something similar to, say, Jupiter's moon, Europa. Now, the twist here is that the tides created on that moon actually are really, really strong. If you imagine on Earth, we've got our tides caused by our little moon, uh, and they actually st stretch the, the water, stretch the oceans on our planet, uh, which create our tides. Now, if you magnify that hundredsfold, you get something like the tides you end up with caused by Jupiter. Now, those sort of tides actually are enough to stretch the whole moon itself, if you were a little moon orbiting around Literally, Jupiter. the fabric of the moon gets squeezed. Exactly. Just, you're actually compressing and stretching the, the rock and the, and the ice, maybe, that makes up the planet. And that actually is enough to heat up the planet, heat up the moon. So it's like the same effect as if you, say, got a bit of wire and kept bending it back and forward. Eventually it heats up and you can actually burn yourself doing that. I've done that before in the past. You can do it with an elastic band as well. If you stretch and, and, and recoil an elastic band fast lots of times, it gets very hot. Absolutely. And this effect can actually warm up the planet. So take a really cold, frigid moon that really would have no chance of, of having life on it and warm it up. 
to create something that's quite nice and pleasant. And we see this actually in our solar system. Uh, Europa has got an ice crust over the top, but underneath it's actually, we think there's a, a layer of liquid water caused by this heating up. And how, how do you know there's liquid water there? Well, the reason why we know, the most reason why we know, is that actually when we look at the surface of Europa, what we see is cracks and fractures on the surface. And then we've seen where water, say, bubbled up then between the cracks and refrozen again. So we know there must be something down there that's liquid that's bubbling up to, to fill these gaps and to, uh, and to seal the planet up again. And we actually get the same sort of effect on, on Jupiter's moon Io, that's Jupiter's second biggest moon. And actually Io is the most volcanic object in our solar system. And it's caused by this fact that it's stretched and compressed, which, which causes all this heat and volcanism. So it really can, can work. And so actually some of the planets we have seen around other stars, the big gas giants, could be places where life is existing on a moon orbiting one of these objects. How far away are the planets we've seen so far? They're all basically a long, long way away. There's no chance of us ever visiting them. Um, they're, they're many, many, many millions of light years away. So the best place to start looking is, is really our own solar system then and, and the moons around our own gas giants? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, some people think that Europa is the best chance in our solar system of finding another, other life on our planet, uh, on our solar system. So, yeah, definitely a good chance there. Dr Chris and Dr Phil, the Naked Scientists, here with you for this evening's edition of the Naked Scientists. And if you would like to ask us any questions, any science questions or any questions about uh, genetics, then the phone number 08459 25 2000. Our text number is 07786 20 1960. Or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. I'm also asking you this evening, the human body contains enough fat to make seven what? What do you think the answer is? Give me a call if you uh, have any clues towards that one. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. I've heard from Mary Hill, who's in Suffolk, and she said, Dear Naked Scientists, I wonder if you could explain if there's any scientific reason why a key suspended from a length of string held over food always seems to indicate correctly whether I can eat a particular food. If I eat anything containing MSG, that's monosodium glutamate, in any form, I get a very severe migraine. If the key rotates clockwise, then the food is taboo, but if it rotates anti-clockwise, then the food's OK for me to eat. I really can't believe this is true. Uh, no, sorry, Mary, neither can I. What about you, Phil? I've never heard of that before, to be honest, but I, I would imagine any spinning is more to do with the, the twist of the cotton that you hang the string on than anything else, to be perfectly honest. I agree. I think that's probably, um, probably Mary, that um, it's a bit of gambler's fallacy kicking in there. You th you're expecting the right answer, and therefore the result happens when it does. It's sort of placebo effect, and then, you, and then a bit of gambler's fallacy. got another email here from Roger Evans, who's... Uh, in Ensenada, in Mexico, as a PhD student, says, uh, my question's about migraines. I tend to get awful headaches. Uh, they seem to fall under the migraine classification, but I notice they're weather-related. Um, I assume that means it could be a pressure effect. So um, why is it that the weather should cause, and especially air flights, um, these effects and headaches in particular? I, I don't actually know whether there is a direct relationship between pressure and headaches. Do you? Uh, I've, I've not heard of it. I mean... Obviously, I mean, extreme pressures could, could cause headaches, but uh, as far as just normal atmospheric pressure, I, I'm not sure. Maybe anyone listening, if you've got any ideas as to whether weather and uh, sort of health phenomena such as headaches are linked, be very interested to hear. Um, my email address, chris at nakedscientist.com. One thing that does occur to me on this front, Phil, is that, of course, if you have high pressure, then uh, usually that's associated with a warm day. Like we've have, like we've got today, That's absolutely true. and when people get very very hot, they get very very dehydrated, and when you get very very dehydrated, you tend to get quite a fierce headache until you drink something. So I suppose that could be possible. That would make sense, absolutely. 
Um, right, okay, we've got a question here from... Oh, sorry, uh, just uh, an email in here from uh, Doug Maxinier. Uh, he just says, I started listening to your show via podcasts. He's in Jackson, Tennessee, USA. Really enjoys the material we cover and personality on the programme. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much there, Doug. Phil, Pamela Melton Evans, uh, she's actually in Georgia, USA. She says, really enjoy the podcast, listening in the USA via, live via the web. Now, how cold is it in outer space, and how do you protect satellites from extreme cold? Well, actually, it's a bit of a fallacy that, that, that outer space is actually really cold. Uh, it actually depends, really, on how close you are to the sun. One problem is that it doesn't feel cold like it does on the Earth. There's no air around you to conduct heat into you or away from you. Everything's done by radiation, so by light passing from one object to another. Mostly from the sun, light falls on, top, on, a, on a body and, and heats it up. Now, actually, for satellites up in space around, around Earth, you know, we, we actually cover them in reflective material to keep them cool, as well as insulating material to keep them hot. So if they're in the sunlight, they actually get the overheat. So we put reflective material on there to reflect the sunlight away. And if they're in the shadow, say behind the Earth or compared to the sun, then we have insulating material on there or even heaters to well, keep everything nice warm. Give us some examples then. How cold is it on Pluto, for example? Because that's, that's well, some... OK, when you get further and further away from the sun, it gets really cold. So, for example, outer space around Earth is probably about 20 degrees. If you go all the way out to Pluto, you probably look at about minus 220. So really, really chilly. And, and in between, it, it, it varies. So, say, at Jupiter, you probably look at about minus 150 degrees C. So, so it depends on exactly where you are. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. OK, here we go. If you're in an experimental mood, it's time for kitchen science this week. We couldn't have a kitchen science uh, on something other than genetics, given that this week's show is a genetics-themed programme. And, and incidentally, if you have any questions for us about that, uh, remember Mark Ross and Michael Traugott are here in the studio. 08459252000 is our phone number, or email chris at nakedscientist.com. The text machine's working too, 07786201960. Well, this week, Derek's with Lucy Wheatley and Lucy Brown. It's going to get confusing because there's two Lucys out there. They're in the developmental biology lab at Cambridge University, and they're going to be trying to tell you how to make your very own sample in your kitchen of DNA from a kiwi fruit. So Derek, how's it done and what's going on? Hello there, welcome to uh, the Department of Developmental Biology this week in Cambridge University, which is where we've come to do a genetics-themed experiment. And uh, with us are two people with, handily for me, the same name. Uh, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to manage, but anyway, here we go. Let's introduce firstly the scientist who's going to be showing us how to do the experiment that we've got today. So uh, could you introduce yourself for us, please? Yeah, hi, I'm Lucy Wheatley and I'm a research assistant here in the SCARE Lab in Developmental Biology Lab. Okay, at Cambridge University, that's cool. And just very quickly, what are we going to be doing today? Well, today we're going to be extracting DNA from a kiwi fruit. Sounds fantastic. Okay, and I think this is something you can try at home if you've got a kiwi hanging around and some other simple stuff as well. And also, uh, we have a volunteer here who's come to help us out. So could you tell us what your name is, please? I'm Lucy Brown. Hello there. Okay, now obviously we do have a bit of confusion here, Lucy and Lucy. So I'm going to be calling the scientist Dr. Lucy and Lucy just Lucy, if that's okay. Is that all right if I don't call you a doctor? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so to begin with then, Dr. Lucy, if you'd like to uh, describe for Lucy uh, exactly what she has got to do in this experiment. So Lucy, the first thing that we need to do is chop up the kiwi fruit so that you can get all of the pulp from outside and remove all of the skin because we don't want that. 
Okay, so we actually have a kiwi fruit here and a handy knife as well. Now, I know there's kind of, is, is there a bit of a core to a kiwi as well? I mean, do you, do you literally want all of it once you've got the skin off? Yes, we literally want everything apart from the skin. The skin we don't really want because it's just going to be bulk. It doesn't have very much DNA in it. Mostly it's just dead. Okay, so while Lucy is, is chopping up that kiwi, um, Dr. Lucy, there are, of course, some other things that people need at home to be able to do this and that we've got. So what, what are the other things that people need? So the other things that you need are some detergent, such as washing up liquid or hand soap and some salt, and also some cold ethanol, such as white rum. Well, how exactly do you make it cold and how cold do you need it? So you need to put it into the freezer probably for about half an hour before you want to do the experiment. Okay, and do you need a lot, whole bottle? Or? No, just a little bit's fine, about 100 mil. Okay, that's cool. Okay, and the kiwi is wonderfully peeled now by Lucy, so what's the next thing to do? So the next thing that we need to do is make an extraction buffer to get the DNA out. So we're going to make that with our detergent and our salt. All that you need is 5 grams of washing up liquid, 2 grams of salt and 100 ml of ordinary tap water. And then you stir it very gently, which Lucy's going to do now. Okay then. Now Lucy actually did make some of this up for us earlier, but um, how, how was it? Was it easy to kind of dissolve the, the salt in the detergent? Yeah, just stir it slowly. Okay, and so what do we do with that? Well, now we just have to chop the kiwi fruit up finely into very small chunks and then mash it up in the mashing buffer. In it goes. Right. Tell us how it feels. Is it easy? No. Yeah, right. Okay. Is it quite resistant to actually... I mean, do you really need to make it completely losing all form, you know, all recognisable kiwiness? No, that's not necessary. Just um, the more that you mash it, the more DNA you'll get out at the end. So we'll, ha we'll, have, a, we'll have a short go at this then. Thank you very much for doing that, Lucy. So, Dr. Lucy, then, what's the next step? So the next step is that we have to heat it to about 60 degrees for 15 minutes. Okay. Now, to get water about that temperature, then, you can take uh, water from a kettle, boiled water, add it to about the same amount of uh, tap water, and then have that in a kind of a basin. And then, let's say, if you've done your mashing up in a mug or something, then you can place that into the, the water. And so the, the, wa the warm water isn't actually being added to your mashed-up kiwi. It's just being put around it. You immerse the vessel in the warm water, something like that. And then you wait for 15 minutes. And at the end of that, of course, we're going to be doing that waiting now and going back to the studio, of course. But at the end of that, what do people have to do? Um, they have to get ready, ready a filtration system to get rid of all of the, the gunky bits that we don't want. Okay, and what is that normally? Like a sieve will that do? Yeah, a sieve or, is absolutely fine. Or if you've got some coffee filter paper, for example, you can filter it through that. Okay, now Lucy, firstly, uh, has been doing all of this, so I do wonder what she thinks we might see. What do you think we're actually going to see in this mixture once we pour that cold alcohol on there? Maybe a green solution. All right, then. Okay. Well, it's certainly green at the moment, so we'll see what happens. Okay, then. Well, anyway, if you at home fancy doing it, then please do ring in or email and tell us what you see. So, basically, the, the phone number, as always, is 08459 252000, and you can also email us at chris at thenakedscientist.com. So, please do come back to here at the uh, University of Cambridge with Dr. Lucy and Lucy uh, a bit later in the show to see what happens. We're going to get busy incubating the kiwi mixture, and until then, it's uh, goodbye. Thanks very much, Derek. So they'll be back with us in about 50 minutes' time. If you want to have a go at that experiment, do take care with the hot water, of course. But if you don't have a kiwi fruit to hand, you can substitute an onion. It'll still kind of work, but not quite as well. Um, you'll also need, obviously need that cloth to filter it with. And uh, you can substitute methylated spirits for the rum if, uh, if you've drunk the rum on this wonderful evening we're having today. But if you uh, reckon you can solve our puzzle, uh, which is the human body contains enough fat to make seven what, give us a call to 08459 And We've had um, Joshua and Tracy give us a ring. They're definitely on the right answer. Not quite, Jackie. Have another think. 
The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. John is in Colchester. Hello, John. Hello there. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientists. What would you like to talk about? Why do we assume life on other planets would be a Homo erectus type of being, breathing oxygen with the usual blood, carbon-based creature? Could not a sentient being breathe methane or hydrogen or be based on a different element? I completely agree with you, John. I don't know what you think, Phil, but the point is that here on, on Earth, we see organisms that breathe methane, we see organisms that breathe and produce hydrogen as a waste product, and we see organisms that produce hydrogen sulphide as a waste product, as everyone who has ever managed to make a smell when they shouldn't have done knows only too well. In fact, some of the first organisms on Earth, in fact, we, we have these organisms to thank for the fact we're here, were methanogenic bacteria. They were, they were microbes that pumped out methane by taking simple carbon built building blocks from the environment and jamming them with four hydrogens to make methane. And we know that because scientists from Japan found some of the world's oldest bacteria, 3.46 billion years old, locked away inside tiny bubbles inside quartz from Western Australia. And they did that earlier this year. So it, life can come in all shapes and sizes. And I think, um, as probably Mark can, can concur, evolution patterns us and, and puts pressure on us to become adapted to our environment and so we are a reflection on life on earth because the environment we have here on earth means that the sort of life that that you see here existing is is adapted to the environment on a different planet it's going to be completely different and therefore we have no reason to assume that alien life would look or even metabolize anything like we do right but is there a danger that if we met this life we wouldn't recognize it as such what do you think, Phil? I think we would, because there are various sort of chemical fingerprints that give life away. I think so. I think that any life form, you know, takes energy and uses it. So in our case, we eat food, bacteria take other chemicals in and, and process it to create energy for themselves to reproduce and for them to, to move and to live. And I think that any element or any life that we find will have that same sort of characteristics in, in common. So I think that we'll, we'll recognise it if we can find it. Were you talking about intelligent life too, John, or were you referring principally to things like bacteria? Sentient life. Sure. Could there be a creature on another planet yes. capable of mating a radio transmitter or a jet-propelled uh, vehicle? Sure. Well, obviously that would be pretty obvious because the thing about... Um, intelligent organisms is if they're going to use radio signals to communicate then those radio signals would invariably have patterns in them that would not be as random as nature and so they would stand out by being non-random and so we would spot them the thing that some people have pointed out which which i think is quite a good point is that as civilizations become more advanced they go away from using things like radio if you look at how we live our lives actually radio is is probably going to be quite an old-fashioned medium quite soon because people will have their radio coming to them down a wire or they'll be downloading it through their computer we won't really be transmitting things to each other in the future we'll be using other much more clever ways of doing it and so actually our broadcasts into space announcing to the rest of the cosmos that we're here they're actually going to disappear in the next i don't know 50 to 100 years and and instead we'll, we'll be replaced by a sort of quietness around the earth so this bubble that we've created of a hundred years of radio signals which are now spreading out a uh, hundred years away from the earth a hundred light years that is uh that, that's actually going to be an isolated bubble i think in the future and and uh 
maybe if someone does pick it up, they'll know we're here. But maybe other civilizations are going to have gone through the same thing. So some people have argued that we should be leaving other kinds of hallmarks of our presence, perhaps sending probes and spaceships, because they, A, last for longer and they're easier to spot and detect, and you can't really argue with them. Well, I think that's already been done, hasn't it, with a crude hieroglyph of male and female and the number of planets out from the sun... Sure, um, but that was one of that's one isolated incident, and we're also not going out looking for other people doing the same thing. We're not really looking. We're just looking for other planets and things, and perhaps we should be looking for other time capsules that other civilizations have pumped out into space somewhere. That's what one person in Australia has argued, and he's quite an eminent astronomer. Do you want to have a go at the quiz, John? Certainly. Uh, the call from a humpback whale is louder than Concord. Uh, fact or fiction? Fact. Absolutely true. In fact, the humpback whale is the world's largest, uh, sorry, world's loudest living creature. And you can actually hear it from 500 miles away. Well done, John. The longest python in captivity is 10 feet long. Fact or fiction? Fiction. Doesn't sound very long. Dead right, you're absolutely spot on. Fragrant flower, this is what this python is called, measures 48 and a half feet, uh, which is 14.85 metres from head to tail. On fire, John. Doing well. Two out of three so far. Here's your third question. A chicken can lay a thousand eggs during its lifetime. Fact or fiction? That's quite a tough one. Fact. Sorry, not quite that many. Uh, Actually, an average chicken lays around 300 eggs in a lifetime. Well done, John. You're in the lead at the moment with two out of three. And a great question. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thank you. John, in Colchester, if you'd like to ask us a question, 08459 25 2000 is the phone number. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or send us a text on 07786 20 1960. My teaser this evening, if you can have a go at this, you could win yourself a prize. The human body contains enough fat to make seven what? What do you think the answer is? And now, Phil. As happens every time this week, we're now going to go over the ocean to hear Bob and Chelsea's science update. This week, they're going to be spotting ancient supernovae and hearing how the ancestor of modern birds may well have looked a bit like a duck. This week, for the Naked Scientists, we'll discuss some spectacular bird fossils that scientists dug up in China. But first, if you had lived in the year 1006 instead of 2006, you couldn't have missed the bright star that suddenly appeared one night in May. It was a supernova, and civilizations in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East recorded it for posterity. Now Chelsea tells us that someone in North America may have noted it too. The 1006 supernova was briefly the brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon. Now astronomers have found rock art in Arizona that might be an ancient record of it. John Barentine of the Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico says the design chipped into the rock is an eight-pointed star next to a wavy line that looks like a scorpion. The 1006 supernova would have appeared next to the constellation Scorpius. And there's a little bit of Western bias in seeing... Scorpius among the the figures on this rock, but it's a pattern of stars that has a long history. It goes back thousands of years, at least in the in the, in the Middle East and ancient Mesopotamia. Um, and it turns out that in many parts of the world that are in arid climates where you would find scorpions, that uh, the the figure of stars that we now call Scorpius. Um, was identified with that animal. He says we can never be sure of the artist's intentions, but chemical dating may resolve whether the rock art was in fact created a millennium ago. And now to rewind even more, it may be that all modern birds, from robins to owls to ostriches, evolved from duck-like ancestors. 
An international team of paleontologists working in China recently discovered five new fossils of a 110 million year old ancestor of modern birds called Gansus humanensis. Jerry Harris of Dixie State College in Utah says it probably looked and acted like today's loons and grebes. It has several similar features in its skeleton that show that it had a similar lifestyle of diving underwater and swimming, and it also had webbed feet. In、uh, some of our specimens, had the skin preserved, show that it had webbing all the way down to the ends of its toes. So we know it was a water-based bird.、Um, and when you put the skin and feathers and everything back on it,、uh, it probably you'd probably have a hard time telling the difference between it and a loon or a grebe, especially from a, a distance like you mostly see them in a lake today. He says Gansus is probably not a direct ancestor of modern birds, probably more like a super great granduncle. He adds that it may have been a tasty dish for dinosaurs. Thanks, Bob. Next week we'll learn about a love hormone that seems to soften marital spats. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald, and I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Thanks, Bob. If you want to hear more from the Science Update crew, then you can do so by listening to their website at www.scienceupdate.com. Thanks, Phil. This is the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris, Dr. Phil, and we're talking this evening with Dr. Mark Ross from the Sanger Institute, and he works on the X chromosome. So we'll be putting the X in sex, if you will, and also Dr. Michael Traugott from the University of Cardiff, and also Innsbruck. He's Austrian, but currently working in Cardiff, and he's going to talk to us about、uh, how he's using the power of genetics to unlock what's going on beneath the soil, out of sight and out of ground. Who's eating who? I've had a, an answer from. Mary, to my quiz teaser this evening, which is the human body contains enough fat to make seven what? She says seven altar candles. Not quite, Mary. Keep thinking. What do you reckon the answer is? If you reckon, you have a guess. Oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand. Now Mark's here from the Sanger Institute. Hi, Mark. Thank you Hi, for joining、Chris. us. Now, can we just orientate people a bit at first? Because the whole point of molecular biology and genetics to many people is a, is a little bit overwhelming. So, first of all, you know, DNA, gene. Chromosome,、mm-hmm. genome. What do these words mean, and how do they all relate? How does it all build up to make the genome of a person and an animal, whatever else? Okay, so、um, to perhaps to take the genome first of all. So the.、Uh We're all—all、uh, all the people sitting in this room—are recognisably human because we have a human genome. So the human genome is is the complete collection of all of our genes, a complete set of all of our chromosomes. So、um, the genome is packaged in the cell.、Um, it can, the genome comprises a, a set of long linear threads of DNA, and these are packaged in the cell into the chromosomes. So the chromosomes are a mixture of the、uh, genetic material, the DNA. And、uh, proteins that package that DNA up into the cell,、um, and then the genes are what what are generally considered to be the uh, functional uh, components in the genome. There are other functional components as well,、um, but the genes are the focus of much interest. They are the、uh, the parts of the genome that contain instructions to build a protein molecule, and it's the proteins then that go on to carry out the functions in the cell and in the tissue and in the body. So the, the gene is the bit you inherit. It's the functional unit. In other words, there are a set number of DNA letters that make up a gene, and the gene tells the cell how to make a particular recipe. That's right. I mean, we we inherit、um, the, our DNA in general, and only a tiny fraction of that actually contains the instructions to make a protein. It's about two percent of the total genetic material. So we're inheriting other、um, genetic material as well. Some of that has function. So, for example, some、uh, pieces of our DNA control genes. They tell a gene when it should be switched. 
on and switched off in a particular tissue or at a particular time. But 2% seems a, a tiny amount, uh, mm-hmm. Mark. You know, 98% not actually turning into something physical in the body. It seems like a, a big waste. Well, um, th- I mean, there is a large fraction of our genome that is, uh, I, I guess, often described as junk DNA, um, and that would cons- be considered to be a wasteful fraction of our genome. Um, however, I think it's uh, actually too early to conclude that this repetitive um, DNA that is just particularly good at getting itself copied throughout our genome uh, lacks a function. And in fact, um, perhaps we'll get a chance to talk later about the phenomenon of X chromosome inactivation. And that's a possible area in which this junk DNA, so-called, could have a role and something that we're interested in. Phil Krause is listening to us in Milton Keynes. He emailed me to say... Um, uh, if, uh, as a human, I share 98% of my genes with a chimpanzee and 60% of my genes with a banana, then how come I only share 50% of my genes with my own daughter? <laughs> OK, so uh, actually I would say that you share uh, more than 98% of your genes with a chimpanzee. I suspect that um, virtually all of the genes that we share, with, uh, virtually all of the genes in the human genome also have counterparts in the chimpanzee genome. And it really the, the most likely explanation for the fact that we are so obviously different from chimpanzees is that um, is the way in which these genes are controlled, the way that they're switched on and off, the timing of that and the length of time for which genes are active. Um, and uh, so you shared 50% of your genes with your daughter because you because she's obviously inherited uh, one genome from you and one genome from her mother. Um, we all of us have two genomes in our bodies, one from our mother and one from our father, um, but there are counterparts to all of your genes um, in the genome that your daughter's inherited from her mother. I think one point that we should add here, Mark, is you know, if you compare a banana and a human, there will be genes in a banana half the time, which do the same job. They're not genetically identical letter for letter as the gene doing the similar job in my body, but uh, 50% of the time you can find a genetic correlate of a gene doing a job in one of my cells in a banana. I think that, I guess that's what Phil's saying, whereas yeah. in his daughter, the genetic letters, letter by letter, the genes will be identical 50% of the time in his daughter that's compared right. with within him. Yeah. But let's get down to what you actually work on, which is the X chromosome. You actually led the, the sort of human genome project to, to sequence that, that chromosome, mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. So uh, the idea of that project was uh, to determine the the so-called DNA sequence of the X chromosome. So um, looking at more detail at the genetic material, the DNA, the DNA, the long molecules of DNA are made up of uh, four basic subunits. And uh, it's the order of these subunits in the DNA and in the genes in particular that determine what um, the, the structure of a protein will be. And so uh, those are the, the sequence of that of uh, the DNA is very interesting to us. And once we have the sequence, it allows us to do uh, a large amount, both studying the function of genes, but also we can uh, we can look at the evolution of our genome. And that's something that I'm particularly interested in. Um, and I well, think as in how we come from chimpanzees? Well, that would be one example. Um, but I'm, I'm more interested in looking further back, actually, and looking at, for example, at marsupials, so kangaroos and so on, and looking at the other mammalian group as well. Those are the monotremes, the egg-laying mammals, things like the, um, the duck-billed platypus. 
um, and looking at the sex chromosomes and how they've evolved in the mammals. Because if we go further back, these sex chromosomes don't, the same sex chromosomes don't exist in birds, for example. Because women have two X chromosomes. That's right. Uh, as men, we have one and we have a Y. So, so just talk about that a little bit okay. and how that, how that actually works and how we make men and women. That's right. Okay. So the reason that the sex chromosomes are called sex chromosomes is because they're inherited differently between males and females. So as you've pointed out, Chris, females have two X chromosomes, whereas males have one X chromosome and a much smaller Y chromosome. And um, the interesting thing is that we we actually know that these chromosomes, although they look very different from each other now, X and Y, they've actually evolved from a, a normal pair of chromosomes, a non, non-sex chromosome pair, if you like. And the reason is that they've become involved in what we call sex determination. That's the trigger to either dif- uh, sexual differentiation into a male or sexual differentiation into a female. So when a baby's essentially first conceived, an, mm-hmm. an early embryo, it's neither male nor female. That's Genetically right. speaking, it is. Obviously, you could tell. But from a developmental point of view, it is neither male nor female to start with. That's right. And in fact, it's the development of the gonad uh, down one of the two possible pathways that determines... Uh, uh, the way uh, our phenotypic sex, the way we look um, eventually. So, and, and the Y chromosome does that? The Y chromosome, so the Y chromosome contains a gene called SRY for sex determining region of the Y. And if we inherit the Y chromosome, when we inherit that gene, then the gonad develops into a testis. And then all male characteristics follow from hormones produced from the testis. But what's really but, interesting, Mark, is that I've got one X chromosome. The ladies we work with here have got two. Um, you know, what do they do with the extra one? Is there a problem having more genetic material than you should do? Because if you look at people who have Down syndrome, they've got an extra copy of chromosome 21, and that obviously has some problems for them. But with the X chromosome, women can have an extra copy, and it doesn't seem to be a major issue. That's right. And um, as you pointed out, in general, having an extra copy of any chromosome is, is, uh, causes very severe problems. But um, in the case of the having an extra X, this doesn't happen. And the reason is that female mammals... Uh, including the ladies in the studio, actually silence one of their X chromosomes. They switch one of their Xs off in all of their cells, and so the genes are no longer active on the X chromosome, and that way males and females have a single active copy of the genes on the X chromosome. Doesn't that cause interesting things with relation to certain diseases? Um, so if, if there's a certain gene that's abnormal on the X chromosome, men are going to get it because they've only got one X chromosome. But because women have two X chromosomes, one of which will have the abnormal gene, but one can have a healthy gene, the women don't succumb to the disorder. That's right. So there's a, there's a very characteristic pattern of inheritance of so-called X-linked uh, conditions where males are generally affected and females are either unaffected or they could have mild symptoms of the condition. And these, these types of inheritance patterns have been described going back thousands of years, particularly for things like haemophilia. Um, and uh, in some instances... Uh, because this process of switching off one of the X chromosomes in females is a random process, um, that would mean that on on the whole, half of the cells in the female body would have switched off the the undamaged X chromosome and the other half would have switched off the, the damaged X chromosome. And that could account for why some of these symptoms are, are visible in, in females. And in, in some extreme cases, actually, this X inactivation can skew uh, in one direction. Presumably the cells that have switched off the undamaged X chromosome actually don't thrive and the, uh, and the other cells do. 
Thanks, Mark. That's Mark Ross from the Sanger Institute. If you'd like to ask him a question, 08459 25 2000, you can text in on 07786 20 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. In a second, we'll be catching up with Joshua, who wants to ask you, Mark, about why people go bald. And also, I've got a teaser for you at home. The human body contains enough fat to make seven what? We've also heard from Tony, who's called in from uh, God Manchester, Mark. He wants to know about retinitis pigmentosa, if you want to have a think about that one too. Well, thanks very much for listening to The Naked Scientist, and we really are extremely grateful for your support. But we'd also like to ask you a massive favour. We're trying to win the 2006 Podcast Awards Science category, and to do that, we need your votes. It's really easy, and it takes less than one minute to vote online. In fact, we've provided all of the details on our website at nakedscientist.com. You just have to follow the link, and it's in the middle of the homepage, and it tells you exactly what details you need. You can even cut and paste it. We'd really appreciate your help with this. Thanks very much. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. Right, let's have a quick chat to uh, Joshua. Hello, Joshua. Hello. Good evening. What would you like to ask about? Um, what I wanted to ask about is why people go bald. And the other thing I wanted to ask about, which isn't a question actually, um, is an answer to your question. Um, it's seven bars of soap. Ooh, well done. You're on the right lines. Anyway, Mark. Hi, Joshua. Thanks for your question. So um, I should make it plain from the outset that I don't really understand why people go bald, and I'd probably be very rich if I understood that. Um, so obviously there is a... I mean, that baldness is what I think is described as a sex-limited condition rather than a sex-linked condition, which means that it tends to affect one sex more than the other, and that's obvious. It affects males more than females. But it's not a straightforward, uh, simple inheritance of a gene on the on the uh, Y chromosome, for example, that leads to baldness, uh, or the inheritance of a damaged gene on the X chromosome. Uh, the, the genetics and the inheritance patterns are more complex than that. Otherwise, people would have been able to follow these inheritance patterns through families and understand more about the genetics of baldness. So we're not there yet, but um, we have some useful information. Yeah. Quick go to the quiz, Joshua. Um, yes, please. If you fell down a long tunnel drilled through the earth, assuming you could reach terminal velocity, and that's 200 kilometres an hour, and maintain it through the trip, now this wouldn't happen, it's theoretical, uh, it would take you over two days to reach the other side of the earth. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Um, science fiction. Sorry, Joshua. Sorry, Joshua. The diameter of the Earth is actually 12,700 kilometres. So at 200 kilometres an hour, it'll take you two days and 15 hours to get all the way through. Right, you've got to get the next one right. Stay in, Joshua, OK? Yeah. The average person in England can expect to live for two and a half billion seconds. Fact or fiction? Um, fiction. Sorry again. Two and a half billion seconds is about 78 years, so that's about the life expectancy of a human on Earth right now. Okay. Thanks for joining us on the show this week, Joshua. Okay. Take care. Now, it is The Naked Scientist, and we are talking about the power of genetics and how we can use this to ask various questions about the environment and the world around us. And one of the people who's doing that is Dr Michael Traugott from both Cardiff University and the University of Innsbruck. Hi, Michael. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Chris. Now, you're trying to solve the puzzle of who's eating who. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's true. So um, I'm interested in, you know, um, what's going on below ground, who is eating whom below ground, and there are yeah, many animals, so about 
four to five hundred different species. And yeah, the thing is, the complicated thing is that um, these animals, yeah, contain, if you dissect them and want to see what they've eaten, they contain no hard remains of the prey, which you really can identify. So it's all been digested? Yeah, digested, liquid things, so it's only a liquid you get. So and the, the nice thing you can use uh, DNA-based methods is that we um, you track... Uh, the the gut, gut content of these animals, mm. what sorts of DNA they contain, and then you know what they've been eaten. So which sorts of animals are you playing around with? Oh, yeah, different sorts of animals, beetle larvae, millipedes, centipedes, uh, earthworms, nematodes. W- was that just not known then, what what was yeah. going on beneath the soil surface? Yeah, 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 it's it's very hard to study be- because it's below ground, hard to to observe and especially hard you know to observe under undisturbed conditions that's normally the problem i mean you you can put for example a plexiglass sheet into the soil and watch the animals but you can only see those animals which are directly behind the glass mm. sheet and you often wonder well have i changed the the situation yeah you have changed this? the thing and completely and you, you it's hard to get really quantitative data and really understand or see what's going on so with this dna based methods it's really it's a new thing and a fascinating thing that you can yeah, analyze with example for example in a, in a in project in Austria 500 predators we've collected from the soil because we were interested who is eating the the white grubs the uh, pests in soil ecosystems and then we found out that the some centipedes they are called uh, geophilites they are probably the most uh, important predators of these soil pests so and that hasn't been known before because there was no technique available to study this so it's really a nice thing to use this. Talk us through the actual nuts and bolts of it so how you would actually do the experiment what does it involve? Yeah, first you have um, to sequence your... Well, hang uh, on, you've got to go and collect the animals first. So where, where do you go and do these? Okay, okay, okay. You, <laughs> you do it from the, from the field situation. Yeah, you have to go to the field, um, dig into the soil, collect animals, f- freeze them immediately because it's, um, yeah, important to freeze them as, as quick as possible. So the gut contents don't go off? Yeah, basically. they don't go off. And then you bring them to the lab, you extract them using methods which are a bit more sophisticated than your... So what your does that mean? You, you crush them up, basically. Yeah, we crush them, extract the DNA. Uh, with soil animals, you have the problem that um, they contain, or they can contain lots of substances which inhibit your PCR reaction. That reaction is later on uh, needed to identify yeah, the, the, the specific DNA molecules. So we crush them, we get the DNA from them, from the predators, including their gut content, yep. and then we, we throw all this together in a, in a nice optimized PCR reaction. Polymerase chain reaction. Yeah, yeah, polymerase chain reaction, add some specific molecular markers which target, yeah, for example, white crops, cockchaver, and then um, if the predator was feeding on this white crop, you get a positive result, so you see a band on an agarose gel, and then you have yeah proven that these predators, this centipede, was feeding on the cockchafer. Mm. It sounds good, but but my worry here is, what about if if the grub crawled through a bit of the soil that another one of these animals had already died in and got some of that DNA on its body? DNA technology is so sensitive. Couldn't you get some contamination? Couldn't you couldn't you be fooled into thinking it had eaten something when in reality it hadn't? It had yeah. just been in the same bit of soil. Yeah. 
that's I mean there's always problems and I think it's not that uh, problematic with just crawling through the soil and that the animals contain the DNA of the target prey outside on the body because there's lots of microbes you know breaking down the DNA but um, the one problem we are really uh, struggling with is you know um, differentiating between active predation and feeding on dead prey, so scavenging, which makes a big can, difference. Can you solve that problem? Not really at the moment, because you can pick up the DNA from dead prey uh, as, as good as, uh, as the one from fresh prey, so it's no difference. I mean, the forensic scientists, you know, they're using also this uh, powerful PCR to get DNA from, yeah, human bodies or other things. It's amazing to think that we've got to the stage where there, there just wasn't the knowledge of what was going on below ground. Um, there, there must be some other spin-offs from this in terms of maybe agriculture and commerce. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the basic idea why we did this project on the on the white crops was that white crops are very serious pests in these alpine grassland ecosystems. And we were interested, you know, what um, below-ground predators... What eats them? Well, yeah, what we can eats go and them. get loads of them. Yeah, yeah, get loads of them. And how to enhance, you know, which species should we enhance? Which are the, the key players in, in regulation? Laying the facts bare... The Naked Scientists. We're joined this evening by Mark Ross from the Sanger Institute and also Michael Traugott. Now, Mark, Mark, I've got a question for you here that's um, coming from Stuart Robertson. And he says, guys, I'd like to hear about recessive genes. Why they say blondes and ginger people have these genes and will become extinct. Why, why, why will the genes only kick in now and not before? Or have any other genes in their past? Or have there been genes in the past that have timed out? So is it possible for new genes like green hair to start up and replace them? What do you think about that? Well, I'm not sure I can um, <clears throat> comment on the, uh, the idea that blondes and ginger people will become extinct. That's the first time I've heard that. But I have heard, interestingly, that some people have speculated uh, that the Y chromosome, will, the one that we were talking about earlier that, will, uh, that determines maleness, actually may disappear completely. It's, the Y chromosome is degenerated um, during evolution of the sex chromosomes, and some people have speculated in 10 million years it will disappear altogether. And obviously that's of some concern to, uh, to males. Um, but um, suffice it to say that natural selection would act uh, against anything that um, uh, obviously that prevented there being males within the population. So for the Y chromosome to disappear, another gene would have to arise that determined male sex, I think. Um, but I really can't comment on extinction of uh, blondes and ginger people. <laughs> and just very briefly, Tushar uh, Bhushan, actually listening in India, says, I'm a listener from Chennai in India. I love your podcast. It's really nice to see you guys take your job seriously. Well, thanks for that. He says, um, I'm wondering why it is that, with all this talk of evolution going on, this is to both of you, by the way, um, why is it that humans have not evolved for over 4,000 years? With your work on the X chromosome, would you agree with that? Well, I mean, there, there are obviously um, different components to evolution. There's the, the component of genetic change, and genetic change certainly is still going on. And then there's the, the component of natural selection, whereby um, certain adaptations are selectively advantageous or disadvantageous. And there's an argument that we've, we've stopped evolving as humans because those we've removed those process of natural selection. Um, but some other people have speculated that um, we're evolving in different ways, perhaps uh, psychologically and so on rather than physically but uh, it's, a, it's an open question I think. Just maybe if there was enough time perhaps we would see a greater amount of change amongst human beings uh, Quite possibly I'd, I'd, it's difficult to speculate on that Chris 
Okay, well, we asked you earlier to see if you could make your own sample of DNA. Well, now we're going back to the developmental biology lab at Cambridge University, where Derek, Lucy, and confusingly enough, Lucy, are waiting to find out what the DNA in a kiwi fruit actually looks like. Derek. Hello there. Welcome back to the Developmental Biology Lab at Cambridge University, where I'm here with Dr Lucy and also Lucy, uh, who have both been doing uh, the experiment to extract DNA from a kiwi fruit. And so what we've done is we've mashed it up with detergent and salt. Uh, we've incubated it at about 60 degrees centigrade for 15 minutes, and then we've actually done the filtering stage as well. So we basically put it through a sieve to get all the gunk out. And, uh, and now we have a nice... Well, let's ask, Lucy, what have we got now in a test tube in front of us? Uh, a smooth green liquid. And it's, it's basically the same sort of colour as a kiwi fruit, so there you go. Uh, Dr Lucy, what do we have to do with this now? So if you take this uh, ethanol here that we've had in the freezer and just pour it slowly down the side of the tube. And uh, I'm seeing it go down. And actually, it does seem to be making a, a kind of a transparent layer on top of the, um, the green of the mixture. It, does the ethanol kind of sit on top of, of the kiwi stuff? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the ethanol is less dense, so it stays on top. So, Lucy, now, at the bottom of that clear layer, on top of the, the green mixture, what, what are we starting to see? Uh, like a jelly substance. OK, so is this what we're meant to be seeing, Dr Lucy? Yes, it is, exactly right. That, the uh, jelly-like stuff that you can see is the DNA precipitating out. OK, now, at the moment in our tube, it's got the thickness of about half a centimetre or something. Does it actually get any more well-defined than that? Yeah, it should do. It should become a lot more thicker and whiter. We usually leave it for about 15 minutes. Now, obviously, we don't have that sort of time at the moment, but is there anything we can do with this? Is there any kind of stuff we can do, poking it or anything like that? Yeah, if you've got a paperclip to hand, you can pull the DNA out and poke it around. It's quite safe to touch and to explore. OK, right, let's have a go then. Lucy, if you'd like to... Okay, we've got some tweezers here from the lab. So, Lucy, if you'd like to give it a poke and tell us, tell us what it's like. Like white, thin substance that's quite clingy. So, basically, the question is then, Dr Lucy, what have we got there? Basically, we've got lots and lots of DNA that's clumped together and also some bits and pieces of proteins that we haven't managed to get rid of during our extraction process. So, we, we've managed to get DNA out of that kiwi fruit. Now, I'd like to firstly just quickly go through the procedure that we did and for you to explain exactly what we were doing at each stage. So, of course, we started off by mashing up the kiwi fruit in, in detergent with salt. So, what was all that doing? So the detergent is to break open the cell membranes and the nuclear membrane to basically free all the stuff that's in the cell so that we can get at the DNA. And the salt was to neutralise the electric charge. So DNA is negatively charged, and when you put the salt in, then the positive charge on the sodium will neutralise the negative charge of the DNA and allow it to stick together so that we can see it now together clumped up. Now, after that, we actually incubated it. So was that just to kind of help that all along? Yeah, that was to help the process along and to also help with the breaking up of the cells and also to destroy some of the proteins that are in the cell. OK, then. And then, of course, we filtered it, which I suppose just got out the gunk that we didn't want. And then, of course, the alcohol which we put on there, the cold alcohol. So what was that doing? So the cold alcohol is to precipitate the DNA because DNA is soluble in water, but it's not soluble in the ethanol. So when it meets the ethanol layer, it precipitates out and forms a solid. And, of course, we've seen some particular properties. Has that changed any more, actually, while we've been explaining that, Lucy? Uh, it looks thicker. The middle layer looks thicker. OK, so it is developing there. But I suppose we've seen that it does have this kind of stringy property. So, so what is it about DNA that makes it like that? Well, DNA is basically a really very long molecule. So you can imagine that when it's all twined up together, it forms something a bit like a string or a rope. So you can pull it up and have a look at it. Um, give us an idea. Like, How much DNA is there in, in a cell? So in one cell, if you laid out the strands of DNA end to end, they would actually reach a length of two metres 
Okay, and yet that molecule is extremely... Well, it's, it must be thin, I suppose, to actually fit into that cell. Yes, it's extremely thin, and you wouldn't be able to see it. Even with a, with a microscope, you wouldn't be able to see it. So, in fact, the amount of DNA we've got there, that's the DNA from, you know, what, lots and lots of cells? Yeah, from billions of cells, essentially. OK, then. And so they kind of stick together and they're stringy, and that's what we've seen. OK, well, there you go. At home, you can do this as well, if you like. It's, uh, it's extracting DNA from a kiwi fruit, and we've done that here at the University of Cambridge with Dr Lucy and Lucy. Uh, so, Lucy, I wonder if you could tell me what you thought of the experiment. Uh, I think it's quite an easy experiment to do at home. OK, then. And did you like it? Yeah, it was different. OK, well, thank you very much to Lucy and Dr Lucy for doing that experiment for us. So please do have a go at that at home. Even if you haven't actually managed to do it already and tell us the result, do have a go because it's great. You can extract DNA from your own kiwi fruit. OK, that's all from the University of Cambridge. So uh, until next week, it's goodbye. Thank you, Derek, Lucy and Lucy. And in fact, next week we're sending Derek to Tanzania to make a mixture called agali. So if you want to make it at the same time, then all you'll need is some maize flour or corn flour and a little bit of water. Right, one very quick question for you, Mark, uh, just before we come to the end. Um, have sci- This is from Wael Fayad, who's in Dubai. He says, do scientists have any understanding of the mechanisms that skills that animals, such as humans, learn and pass to their offspring via their genetic code? In other words, it's becoming hardwired. Um, a very difficult question to answer, Chris. I'm not uh, aware of there being any evidence for um, learning of particular skills then becoming hardwired in the, in the DNA. I mean, this uh, was a, th- a theory that was quite popular in the early 20th century that perhaps uh, Lamarckian inheritance could occur whereby we could learn traits and this would get hardwired into the DNA, but I'm not sure that there is a mechanism for that to occur. Thank you very much. That was Mark Ross and Michael Traugott we had earlier on in the programme. Uh, Mark Ross from the Sanger Institute and Michael Traugott from the University of Cardiff and Innsbruck. Next week, we're going in search of the origins of allergies. We'll be talking with Professor Carrick Sewell from Lincoln University, and he'll be taking your questions about hay fever, asthma and other kinds of plant and food allergies. If you have a question, please email them to me this week, chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a great week, and please don't forget to vote for the Naked Scientist in this year's podcast awards. Details are on our homepage at nakedscientist.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientist.com.